Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. This past week saw an OPEC Plus meeting that resulted in a reduction in crude oil production cuts. This change will undoubtedly have an effect on Jim and my primary area of focus, the America's energy markets. So Jim, if you would, give us a rundown of what happened in that meeting and uh, how it impacts Canada. Sure. So the OPEC Plus uh, group consists of 23 members, the 13 OPEC members and 10 other oil producing countries. So the 13 OPEC members, Algeria, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, Republic of the Congo, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. The other 10 oil-producing countries, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Brunei, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Mexico, Oman, Russia, South Sudan, and Sudan. So as Corey mentioned, the OPEC Plus agreed on Wednesday, July 15th, they'll move their production, their collective production limits from 9.7 million barrels a day to 7.7 barrels million barrels a day, which is to say they're adding 2 million barrels of oil to the market. Nevertheless, Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, said production cuts in August and September would be around 8.1 to 8.3 million barrels a day. It seems to be with the current state of obedience to these cuts, I take the energy minister at his word. So moving on to Canada. The eastern side of Canada seems isolated from direct conflict with OPEC+. However, the world is tightly linked, and the secondary effects, mostly price effects, may be an even bigger influence on Canada's east side than the pressure that Johann Sverup and Eagleford grades are putting on a potential Bay du Nord project. Moving over to the west side. The west side of Canada doesn't compete much with OPEC+, Plus, mainly due to the limitations of the single West Ridge dock and the port restrictions on ship size. When Kinder Morgan gets the new West Ridge docks operating, there'll be three of them, the boats loaded there will likely be a bit higher on the marginal cost standpoint, but very competitive from the total cost per barrel standpoint. So what is the competition? Chinese refiners like the Cold Lake grade. So post-upgrader, Cold Lake is an 11 API, 5.5% sulfur asphalt grade. That is, of course, pretty heavy to move through a pipe. So Cold Lake is typically blended with condensate, 65 API, 0.1% sulfur, to come up with a blended grade of around 20 API and 3.5% sulfur. The biggest competition will be from Mexican Maya and a couple of Venezuelan grades. The heavy sweet grades like Brazilian Buzios and Lula are not priced the same, nor do they serve the same purpose, and therefore aren't really competitors. So I'm not sure this next one is an OPEC Plus related or not, but it's such a bold statement I have to mention it. A Panamax is not a very big ship by oil transport standards. However, the Panamax Cabo de Hornos docked at Canaport on the east side of Canada on Tuesday of this week with over 400,000 barrels of oil. Here's what makes this a bold move. It came from Canada. No, the other side of Canada. 
the Cabota Hornus steamed from the Westridge Dock in Vancouver down past the west coast of the U.S., passing a similar grade in California called Kern River, and then the Pacific coast of Mexico through the Panama Canal, granting a tip of the hat as it passed by Mexican Maya production through the Gulf of Mexico, passing by the Western Canadian Select already in Houston, up the eastern coast of the U.S. to get to Canaport and Irving Oil's St. John's Refinery. So clearly, this absurdity was more of a statement about Canadians helping Canadians and how the Energy East pipeline should be back in play than it was an economic voyage. Or was it? If WCS loads Westridge Dock at WTI minus $7 a barrel, and the cost for this 12,000-kilometer voyage is about $2.60 a barrel, that would put WCS into St. John Refiner cheaper than just about anything else they could buy, including Mexican Maya and WCS out of Houston. So thanks to Synovus and Irving Oil for giving the oil industry a laugh. And then the uncomfortable realization, we're laughing at people smarter than us. That is bizarre. Okay, so Jim, are you sure about this lawyer thing? I mean, it sounds like another interesting week (laughs) in the courts for U.S. oil. Yeah, I'm going to leave that lowering stuff to you, sir. So the U.S. presents a multifaceted set of challenges and opportunities for the OPEC Plus membership. The scope and impact extend far beyond oil. So it's a bit difficult to take oil in isolation, but that is what I'll try to do. Before the COVID pandemic, the U.S. was the largest producer of crude oil in the world. They were also the single single biggest consumer of crude oil in the world and the second biggest importer of crude oil behind China. When the phrase in the world creeps into any sentence, you're talking about big, impactful numbers. In fact, before OPEC Plus was formed in 2016, the U.S. and Russia were OPEC's two biggest foes on the production side. OPEC Plus started as a six-month agreement between Russia and OPEC, Red Saudi Arabia. President Putin saw some strategic advantages to extending that relationship, again, far beyond oil. And now a more formal, informal OPEC Plus was born. So now, at least in theory, Russia and Saudi Arabia have aligned goals. I know, I know, I'm getting to the price war. That leaves the third rail and an intractable economic problem, the United States shale producer as an economic free rider. Here's how the free rider problem exists in the oil market and why it's intractable. The Russian and the Saudi governments can directly control the amount of oil produced by their countries as the government owns the resource. Taken in isolation, if they want the price to go up, they simply mandate a limit to the supply and at constant demand, there'll be fewer barrels to meet that demand and the price goes up. Here's the problem. When millions of people and thousands of companies own the resource instead of the government, there's no legal mechanism by which to limit production. The only limiting factors become the economics of producing oil or the ability to move and store oil. Thus, when Russia and or Saudi Arabia make cuts to production, they pay the price and the U.S. producers reap the benefit they didn't pay for. There are means to solve this free rider problem within a sovereign state, 
but not between sovereign states. So how can OPEC Plus deal with this threat to their business? In fact, the, the COVID pandemic gave OPEC Plus the opportunity to try both avenues of free rider mitigation. Again, those avenues being the economics of producing oil and clog the ability to move and store oil. To change the economics of producing oil in the U.S., OPEC Plus used two strategies. One, flood the U.S. export ports with Saudi oil. At one point in time, there was an estimated 60 million barrels on ships in the Gulf of Mexico. Two, flood the markets where U.S. exporters are moving oil. This one proved a little bit harder to execute. However, Saudi Arabia opened up their storage tanks and flooded the export markets with similar oil grades, thereby causing the U.S. shale producer to stop producing oil as many of the smaller producers are heavily leveraged and thus driving them into bankruptcy. One big case is happening in Houston as I speak. California Resources Corp, CRC, is the largest producer of oil in California. The CRC filed bankruptcy in Houston this week. Speculation is in the market this could kick off a new wave of bankruptcies in the space as Denbury Resources and Noble Corp both missed July bond payments and Chaparral Energy asked creditors for more time. In the case of California Resources Corp, this could come back to haunt OPEC Plus as the bankruptcy filing is a debtor-in-possession kind of bankruptcy. The debt holders are renegotiating the debt structure, forgiving as much as $5 billion of $6.1 billion in debt, and already have debtor-in-possession debtor financing in place, which means CRC will come out of this bankruptcy in a much better fiscal shape. Not only will they be producing oil through the extent of this filing, but now has financing to re-engage some of the more than 17,000 wells that were previously sitting idle. CRC actually started to draw on that financing yesterday, Friday. Here's another problem for OPEC+. Plus. The U.S. lifted the crude oil export ban in December of 2015, so not even five years ago. This ban existed since 1975. Investments were made, infrastructure built, that was intended to move oil around the U.S., but certainly not optimized for exports. Which means when the U.S. could export oil, they can definitely load a boat and send it on its way, but the systems weren't designed for export. Even with these inefficient assets, the U.S. was able to export 4.4 million barrels a day for the last week of December. So what's stopping the U.S. from exporting 8 million barrels a day? In short, the answer is time. Time to build more deep water loading facilities, pipelines directed to the shore instead of the refining complex, tank farms near the coast, and expand current facilities. In the almost uh, five years since the ban, systems are being designed and built specifically for exporting crude oil. Three of these are being worked on as I speak. In episode nine, I talked about two deep water SPMs, single point mooring, that are being built. Spot is off the coast of Corpus Christi, and Blue Water, Texas is up the coast a bit offshore Freeport, Freeport Texas. The third notable project is making a current export giant even bigger. 
the Port of Corpus Christi has dredged the entrance to the port to 54 feet from 47 feet. And they also widen the channel from 400 feet to 530 feet. This will allow VLCCs to make their way in as far as Harbor Island. That was phase one, and it was completed in March. Phase two will allow the same VLCCs to voyage to the La Quinta Basin. This includes Ingleside, which is already sending out one ship a day for exports. So those three projects will be game changers. Um, how does Mexico fare? So Mexico is one of the OPEC Plus members and the only one who has not made substantial cuts. And that seems to be acceptable to the membership as it is well known how Mexico and Pemex are trying to work its way out of crushing debt and some corruption that infiltrated their system. Mexico's main export grade, Maya, doesn't compete much with other OPEC plus grades. Its main markets are about 65% coming to the US, 10 to 15% to each India and South Korea, and about 8% to Spain. The main competition in the US market, red Houston, are Canadian grades. However, Maya needs to move to a refining market with a substantial coker base or a sizable asphalt plant base. When I look at Refinitiv's flow page and focus in on who supplies Spain, to no one's surprise, a lot of Russian and European fuel oil makes its way to Spain. Mexican isthmus grade is barely a player on the lighter grades going into Spain. That, that market is dominated by the U.S. and West Africa. Mexico does send some isthmus, but the shipments are few and far between. Zama oil, when that comes up, may change that market and make it a little more interesting in the next couple of years. Medium grades are distributed between five countries. The heavy grades is where Mexico has a bigger market share, with Venezuela and Iraqi heavy also moving there, moving to Spain. India and South Korea are bigger and far more complex competitive markets. Occasional isthmus makes it into South Korea. Maya is consistent supply into both markets as each India and South Korea appear to work very hard to diversify their supply for individual grades. Moving Maya out of Salina Cruz on the Pacific side of Mexico, as opposed to moving from the Gulf of Mexico, may help in gaining some market share over the other heavy grades, but the effect will likely be limited as India and South Korea obviously have a desire to have a diversified group of suppliers. Arguably, the largest impact to Mexico from OPEC plus countries is the secondary effect of what they do with global supply and its effect on worldwide price. That, my friends, could be a week-long seminar. Hey, Corey, maybe we could put on that seminar in Cabo San Lucas. Hey, uh, uh, give me a second. I'm, uh, I'm looking for my passport. <laughs> yeah. So after you find it, why don't you tell us uh, what you see in OPEC Plus influencing the South American markets? Okay, great question. Uh, so obviously OPEC's wheelhouse is a crude oil market, but the recent shipments of gasoline to Venezuela got me wondering generally about OPEC's influence in South America. Now I'll get to crude, but let's first examine refined products. Turning to my O-Flow tool, South American gasoline and middle distillate waterborne imports averaged about 735,000 barrels per day in 2019. This number does not include interregional trade, so it's only those products that have come from outside of South America. And it should be no surprise 
that have that 735,000 barrels per day average, just under half of those imports go to Brazil. And do I have to tell you where most of those imports come from? Well, you guessed it, the, the US. Something around 575,000 barrels per day on average in 2019. OPEC imports of gasoline and middle distillates to South America generally hovered around 20,000 barrels per day, mostly from the UAE, with an occasional cargo from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Algeria. For 2020, the imports have been less, but the structures remain much the same. The difference being the addition of Iran to the mix, a country that has been absent from the scene for as far back as I can find. And if you look outside of just OPEC to OPEC Plus, Russia consistently sends products to South America, but typically this volume stay just below 15,000 barrels a day. Oh, interesting. So what about crude? Well, in 2019, South America imported crude oil from outside sources at an average of 350,000 barrels per day. This isn't net trade, as crude exports from South America are considerably higher, and just under half of these imports were to Brazil. As we've discussed before, Brazil swaps its crude for grades it can run in its domestic refineries. And just like with the rest of the world, here OPEC exacts its influence through crude. Of that 350,000 barrels per day that South America imported in 2019, about 217,000 barrels per day came from OPEC, with the bulk of those volumes coming from Saudi Arabia and Nigeria. Meaningful for South America, uh, but kind of round-off error for OPEC. However, just as the U.S. has influence in South America via inter alia refined products, it also has influence via crude. If you add together the OPEC contribution with crude coming from the U.S., you just about meet South American external crude import demand. Ah. So what else do you have for South America this week? Well, I've spent some time today talking about influence, and that's generally a theme I like to talk about. So understanding the extent of OPEC's or even OPEC Plus's influence in the oil markets now and in the future versus what it was historically is crucial to understand as we analyze the energy markets. That theme echoes through South, America, through South America. The U.S., China, Russia, and other countries outside of OPEC largely control Venezuela's and OPEC members' future. In Guyana, which I've spoken about previously, production continued even with low prices, and issues there are local but also influenced by the U.S., with sanctions imposed against Guyanese election officials. Another example is Ecuador. Ecuador has had quite the history with OPEC. After joining the cartel in 1973, it suspended its membership in 1992 due to its disagreement with having to pay the $2 million, uh, $2 million annual membership fee and its needs to produce more than allowed under quota. Ecuador later rejoined the cartel in 2007, but for much of the same reasons as it left the first time, Ecuador again terminated its membership January of this year. Late last year, Ecuador secured a $4.2 billion loan from the IMF, with the possibility of receiving an additional $6 billion. It focused its aim on production and capturing more of the export market, though it has promised from time to time to help OPEC and others to stabilize the oil market. And Ecuadorian President Moreno has instituted an austerity plan laying off oil workers, removing fuel subsidies, and looking for a new operator for the Esmeraldas refinery. But in a continuation of the China story that Jim and I have been telling the last couple of months, Ecuador is currently in talks with China to obtain a $1.4 billion loan secured by 50 million barrels of crude. 
Ecuador already has a few debt for crude agreements with China, so this is just another example of China spreading its influence in Latin America and, to me, another threat to OPEC influence. Granted, Ecuadorian crude exports aren't terribly impactful in the grand scheme of the, grand scheme of the oil markets. <clears throat> Production in the country is generally just a bit north of 500,000 barrels a day. And as, I, and as I talked about a few weeks ago, landslides in April ruptured pipelines, including Petro Ecuador's major 360,000 barrels per day Sote pipeline. This, this put April-May average crude exports around 200,000 barrels a day. However, June saw exports in the neighborhood of 343,000 barrels a day, which can be contrasted with the 2019 average export number of 415,000 barrels a day. Not much of these volumes went to China, but as the countries build a trade relationship, we'll obviously see more heading that way. So Jim, um, what do we have brewing for next week? For those customers I talk to on a regular basis, first let me say thank you. We have an amazingly experienced and detail-oriented group of customers. They hear a constant theme from me. The linkages in the oil markets are growing stronger in spite of the political rhetoric. Therefore, the impacts of one group on another group are going both ways, pain and gain. Next week, Corey and I will be answering some of the customer questions we have received. If you have a question you would like answered, feel free to email Corey at Corey.Stewart at Refinitive.com or Jim at J.Mitchell at Refinitive.com. Our emails will be in the comments section. All right. Thanks, Jim. Uh, have a great week, everyone, and we look forward to your questions.